This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are as a people, inherently and historically, opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. UFOs, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of the best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com, where we ask questions and question the answers. I'm your host, Mel Famburgus, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again and if this is your first time please make yourself at home I want to thank you Veritas member for making this program possible tonight's special guest is author and researcher Richard Cassaro will discuss his new book written in stone decoding the secret Masonic religion hidden in Gothic cathedrals and world architecture get ready to have some of your paradigms shattered Richard Cassaro will be with us shortly. To listen to the full interview, go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. That way, you'll help us continue producing high-quality shows without commercials or censorship. And visit the Veritas store, where you can buy MMS, USB drives with every season, and much more. And to get in touch with me, click on the contact button of our website at VeritasRadio.com. Conspiracy theorists say the Freemasons are an evil cabal aiming to take over the entire world. Whether true or not, the Freemasons of today bear little resemblance to the cathedral building order of yesteryear. This loss has left 5 million modern Masons worldwide clueless as to their order's true origins and purpose. All that's left is an empty set of meaningless rituals, ceremonies, and symbols along with substitute secrets 
usually associated with faith, hope, and charity. For decades, researchers have tried to recover the order's lost wisdom. None as of yet have deciphered anything meaningful in the architecture, and none have discovered the repeating architecture pattern, the cathedral code. But as you're about to hear, the key to breaking this code is hidden in the triptych architectural portal. The Freemasons have a stunning truth about this architectural triptych that scholars and archaeologists are totally unaware of. This truth is that the triptych stretches back to the farthest reaches of antiquity. Incredibly, it was universally constructed by history's first civilizations. Triptychs are still visible in temple ruins on important landmarks worldwide. The triptych appears in a staggeringly vast number of ancient cultures, a discovery that has the potential to rewrite ancient history. It evokes groundbreaking new questions that challenge our understanding of antiquity, questions that modern scholars and researchers have been unwilling or unable to raise. How could these varied cultures have built the exact same types of triptych temples, separated as they are by vast space and time? Could it be that the triptych symbolizes a common idea, universal wisdom, or parallel doctrine that was mysteriously shared by all of them, and that this doctrine was slowly forgotten over the millennia, but carried clandestinely into the current era by the age-old Freemasons? To learn the secret meaning of this giant hieroglyph and stone, and see how its wisdom once formed a universal religion in antiquity, once known to every ancient empire on earth, Richard Cassaro is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. again, right here on Veritas. Beam me up, Mal. Richard Cassaro was born in New York City in 1972 and studied the ancient tradition early on, traveling widely in his youth. He graduated with honors in journalism and philosophy from Pace University. Over the next several years, he traveled to Egypt, Mexico, Greece, Italy, Sicily, France, England, Peru, and finally, Spain, in his quest to uncover what he calls a lost sacred science, which he claims is symbolized architecturally by the triptych pattern in antiquity. Not long after, he traveled to India, where he learned a little Sanskrit, studied the Vedanta, and was initiated into a Theosophist society, where he began to recognize the triptych's link to the Freemasons. Kassar has studied ancient ruins on four different continents, Americas, Africa, and Europe. He has lectured at academic and learning institutions in Egypt, Italy, Spain, and Peru. His writings have been published in magazines and journals worldwide. He has been a ghost writer for a best-selling esoteric author, 
a U.S. correspondent for a major Italian publishing house, a managing editor for a popular U.S. magazine, and a consultant to print and broadcast media. His new book, Written in Stone, reveals the wisdom of the triptych and the sacred science, their ancient roots, and their connection to Freemasonry. And to learn more about Richard Cassaro, his work, and to buy his new book, Written in Stone, visit his websites at richardcassaro.com and deepertruth.com. And directly from Stanford, Connecticut, I would like to introduce Richard Cassaro to Veritas. Hello, Richard, and welcome. How are you? I'm great, Mel. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the radio show with you. It's my pleasure. And first of all, before we start, I want to thank Andrew from Australia, one of our listeners for referring me to, to you, Richard, and, his, and your excellent work. This is what I love about interacting with all our listeners around the world. I don't hold all the answers. I, I, don't, I don't know all the great perspective guests out there. You do. And I'm glad you are opening these new doors for me. But Richard, I have to tell you, as I was telling you offline, when I got your, received your book, I saw the, the, the cover, and I honestly didn't have any expectations. But I finished reading it last night, and I have to tell you, it is absolutely a masterpiece. This is great work, and I'm so glad that you're going to be telling us a lot about this. I grew up a Catholic. I, I traveled through Europe, and I used to visit a lot of those, those cathedrals. And in my subconscious mind, I thought, wow, I see a lot of similarities. But I never connected the dots like you have. And first, how were you led to your research and discoveries? Where prompted you to begin your quest? Well, Mel, first of all, I have to say, you know, thank you so much for paying me that tremendous compliment. I can honestly tell you, it almost brings me to tears to hear you say that about my work. It's, it was a, a very long and hard road to get that book published. And, uh, to hear you say that really is tremendous. But, you know, <clears throat> starting from a very early age, I've always been interested in the meaning of life. And I've always felt like we're not getting the whole story. And I've always felt like something is, 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 Something is blocking us from understanding what's happening here. And it wasn't until, you know, uh, recently that a few years ago, several years ago, that I started to feel like the whole society that we live in, the major corporations that are running the world and the governments and things like that are, are the ones that are blocking us and interfering with us. And uh, just an interest in, in archaeology that led to an interest in spirituality and ancient religions um, traveled a lot when I was when I was young, you know, mostly in Europe uh, to begin with, and then started traveling outward from there. Um, but like you, I was I was you know born and raised a, a Christian, believing in Christ and that type of stuff, and that never did it for me. And I felt like a strong yearning to uncover more. Um, and then uh, little by little, after college, it started to unfold from there. Yes, exactly. And and before we start, you mentioned Spain, and I have to ask you, I, I presume, and I know you did, you visited the Alhambra uh, area in, in, in Granada. When I visited that area of the world, I, I found out that, that they had Judaism, Islam, and, 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 and Christianity all coexisting in peace. But all of a sudden, when the, the Spanish took back the area, all of a sudden, they, they, they started uh, eradicating the other religions. Did you find that when you were there too? Well, you know, one thing that I get, now I wouldn't say I get into arguments with Christians, but one thing I think that, um, that really opened my eyes about Christianity was, you know, I mean, you have a flourishing Europe for thousands of years in pre-Christian times. 
um, you know, the Romans, the Greeks, etc., and the cultures before that. And then with the rise of Christianity, you know, within 300 years, you suddenly have the Dark Ages, and that lasted for so many centuries. Uh, you have the Inquisition, w- w- which wiped out entire towns and, and killed thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands, probably millions of people. You know, so, you know, the thing about Christianity is it was such a, it's such a, it has such a violent history and such a violent past. It seems to be a religion where people are trying to control other people to get them to do what they want. I think that uh, there was, there was a founder. There was a strong message. I think it started as a, as a great thing, but quickly it turned from there into something that's bloody violent and tyrannical. I think you can say the same thing about the United States where the founders had the best intentions, but, uh, but you know, 200 years later, it's a dictatorship. It's a tyranny. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And I'm glad that you, you added those two together because it is true. We look at the founding fathers and, and how, we are giving away our rights without questioning it. And this is why we are where we are. The apathy is the biggest concern I have. But you include a quote by Walter Wilmshurst in your book. It talks about the monotonous mechanical repetitions of unexplained ceremonies and side lectures. The first mental reaction I got when, when I read that was that the same rituals conducted by religions, the repetitive ways. Why is this done? Is this to program to keep you within the the software, if you if you will. Well, that's interesting that you point that out. I mean, one of the things that seems very clear to me is that, you know, as you know in the book, I speak very highly of the founders of Freemasonry and the cathedral building Freemasons because they were tremendous people. Uh, when I hear about these young people today talking about how the Masons are so bad and they control the world and things like that, you know, they really have no idea that. Uh, that masonry started for noble purposes to preserve the ancient wisdom to carry that tradition onward um and that's what the masons did they they encoded that wisdom into the cathedrals um but um you know the um the freemasons uh, i kind of lost my train of thought <laughs> sorry no, no that's okay that's okay i'll 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 bring you back but i i'm glad you're mentioning this because conspiracy theorists say the freemasons are an evil cabal aiming to take over the entire world. What is your opinion of this? True, or are they trying to tell us something? Well, I, definitely the masonry. I remember. My, I remember what I was going to say. Definitely the masons of today have have no idea what's going on. There's, there's no doubt about it, and and the the vast majority don't even really care. They are. There are a good 30% of Masons that join because they want to know the meaning of life, that they have deeper yearnings and that type of thing. Um, but what's happened, in, in my opinion, is in the past 100 or so years, maybe 150 years ago, somebody messed with the wiring of Freemasonry and changed a lot of the rituals and, and dumbed it down and made it confusing and made it into something that it's not supposed to be. Uh, it was founded for great and noble purposes, but now it's something that, as you say, it's a repetitive, it's a nonsensical um, collection of sayings and things like that. They talk about faith, hope, and charity, which have nothing to do with um, with really what the founding and the ancient wisdom is. 
So I think in some way, as you say, it, it was created or it was uh, it has evolved into something that um, that is just doesn't make any sense. It's repetitive and it's monotonous and it does, it's way off the mark. And I think it's been done on purpose by those same big companies, big corporations, uh, old families that are behind um, the elite, as we call them. Um, they don't want us to join Freemasonry and understand what the truth is. They they messed with the wires. They changed it around. It's just a boys club now. It's just an eating and drinking society. Maybe there's some esoteric talk on the fringes, but there's no great wisdom there anymore. And that's what I'd like to explore. What changed the wiring, if you will? Because prior to the 1700s, the Freemasons were employed by popes to build, as you say, Europe's cathedrals. But in the early 1700s, something changed, and all of a sudden, the Holy See turned on the Freemasons, and it was uh, Pope Leo XIII who condemned uh, Freemasonry in uh, 1884, even today's popes. Well, we, you know, uh, but he was a cardinal in 1983. Uh, uh, Ratzinger said, said, quote, the faithful who enroll in Masonic associations are innate uh, uh, innate of grave sin and may not receive Holy Communion, unquote. What happened? Why the change of heart? You see, the way I see it is this. Um, before Christianity, the entire world shared the same wisdom tradition. And, and as you know, in the book, it's, that wisdom tradition is symbolized by the triptych. Um, about the start of Christianity, um, a group of people wanted to change that. They wanted to control others. They came up with the idea that to start religions to do that. Um, and a group of people wanted to preserve the ancient wisdom. And those were the first secret societies that, um, that knew that they couldn't go against the big powers or what were becoming the bigger powers. So they went underground and they created these, these secret societies like the Freemasons. Um, where they practiced the ancient wisdom, and the ancient wisdom is powerful, and it allowed these secret societies to grow, probably almost as as powerful as the as the um, the elite that were controlling the rest of the of, of the uh, of the population, and uh, and the secret societies had found a, had found a way to con- to c- encode their wisdom and pass it on to pospe- posterity. They encoded their wisdom into the cathedrals and into other monuments and things like that. Um, and so over the centuries, I think that there were, there were priests and bishops and things like that who, who were Freemasons also secretly, who had to, you know, uh, follow the, the line that, uh, that they were given by the, by their higher ups, but who secretly understood the ancient wisdom and wanted it to be um, to be passed on to posterity. But I think there became a point where the ancient wisdom started to die out, even among the Freemasons. And until you have a situation where, you know, the, the popes and the, and the bishops and, and everybody were just Christians and, and a lot of the ancient wisdom had already died and, um, they had realized what had happened over the preceding centuries. And they had realized what the Masons had done in encoding this ancient wisdom in the cathedrals, and they weren't happy about it, and they couldn't very well tear down the cathedrals. So they had definitely had to outlaw the Freemasons, and that's what they did. And that's why you have these uh, these you know Christians saying that uh, Christianity and Freemasonry are not compatible, and they're not compatible at all. There's nothing in Freemasonry that has really much to do with Christianity as it's understood today in, in the religion. 
Um, but of course, Christianity is uh, true. Christianity has nothing to do with just one person named Jesus. It's, we all have a Christ within. We all have a soul within, a light within, a divine within. And the the true teaching of of the most ancient form of Christianity is that we all need to find that inner self, that higher inner self, and and there's where the gold is, and there's where the the truth is. And look, I I can go back to ancient uh, tribes around the world. Let's take the Dogon, for example. They were priests in Egypt, and when the when the Western world started coming and the war started happening, they, they basically escaped and oral tradition was in place. They wanted to hold their knowledge and only disseminate it via uh, initiation, which seems to be exactly what the Freemasons do in a different system. Do you see the, the correlation, the parallels here? Yeah, yes. Now, t- t- tell me, tell me how, how is it? that uh, we still have Freemasonry in this way, in the ancient way still? You know, there little by little it was changed. It wasn't just a, a major, you know, a reshuffling. I think little by little it was changed over the course of decades, probably between about 1820 and 18, uh, you know, 1890, I would guess. Um, you, if you watch the History Channel, which I really try not to, but once in a, once in a while it just comes up, um, you'll see and you read in popular books that they say that uh, around 1860 there was this whole Morgan affair where um, where the Freemasons supposedly mur- murder- murdered this uh, Freemason named, named Morgan. Um, so it's it's, you know, it's hard to say exactly what happened. And, and I try not to, you know, look at history too much because that's why my book is called Written in Stone, because the stones don't lie. Um, whatever is written in stone is put there and can't be changed or tweaked or written or changed by the victors. You know, history is written by the victors, but what's written in stone is written in stone. The Freemasons put that there in stone. Nobody can change it. Um, I don't really believe much of history. I try to stay away from history. So I, um, I focus my work on, on, uh, on whatever is, uh, written in stone, <laughs> but, um, it's the, the 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 way Freemasonry is today is probably it's it has some elements of truth to it, you know the three you know having three uh, three levels of initiation and that type of stuff I think that's pretty much the same as it was um, and there's other things in there like the sun and the moon and the and the middle eye and that type of stuff that's that's pretty much the same but it's all interpreted differently. And a lot of it is switched around, so as almost to the extent to make it unrecognizable. If you have an idea of what the ancient universal religion is, and you understand it was balancing duality by and awakening the third eye, and that the third eye finds the soul within, then you can look at Freemasonry and understand it and say, okay, well, it does make sense. Look, there's the tracing board, there's the sun and the moon, there's the middle eye. And you look at cathedrals and you see the same pattern and you start to recognize similarities. But if you have no idea what the ancient wisdom is, it's almost impossible to look at Freemasonry and discover what the heck they're trying to say and do there. And absolutely. And I want to, again, explore why 
is Freemasonry so demonized these days? Even <laughs> Congressman Ron Paul or, or, or other people, David Icke, who has arthritis and he shakes the hand in a particular way, all of a sudden they're demonized because they, they think that they're Masons. But before before you answer this, I want to go back once again to Pope Leo XIII, who was the very first one to condemn Freemasonry. What was that event that triggered the Catholic Church to take that new posture when they were using Freemasons to build their their beautiful cathedrals. Well, you know, according to historians, they they don't know. Historians don't even know what that event was. You know, in my book, I discuss how it's possible, and and my belief is that uh, they had really found out, they had really discovered. Or, you know, it came to a point where there was a group of people in the Vatican that uh, that got tired, they found out and got tired of what the Freemasons were doing or in some way had a disagreement with the Freemasons or realized that they're a pagan society or realized that they were getting stronger and stronger and maybe they became a threat to the the popes and the Vatican and that type of stuff and and wanted to uh, to destroy them. But it's really impossible to say. Historians don't even have an answer for it. So... Um, so it's hard to really say what exactly was that um, that straw that broke the camel's back. No, and as you say, history has been written by the victors, and we think of war and governments and countries doing this, but religion also had their part. Uh, we think of of a lot of what you discuss here, and many people think it's it's mythology, and we need to start the the mythologizing history. I mean, let's take for example the the Spaniards who came to America. You know, I've been to many sites in America, Mesoamerica, and a lot of times they took a sacred site and built a church on top of it. And that tells me that they just want that knowledge to be erased from from the history books. And I'm, I'm sure you've found this everywhere around the world. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I, I also started to develop a little idea that um, that I'm still developing. You know, a lot of these ancient sites, they're... The ancient people had far more wisdom than we do today. That's that's one thing that I'm sure about. The ancient sites, I think they chose for a reason. I, I, I look at the earth and I think that the earth has spots on it of particular power um, with relatives to the stars, relative to the you know magnetic poles and things like that. Um, and I think they chose those spots for a reason. And I think that the Spaniards, as you say, and, and other European cultures that um, that built on ancient sites did it yes to to you know show that hey we're Christianity now and and we're, we're stomping on your old religion and you're going to become Christians I, I believe that but I also believe that they chose those sites because in some way they wanted to hijack that that ancient power that that um, that the earth holds and by building their monuments on top of these ancient sites I think in some way they realize that they're harnessing the power of these ancient sites. Again, as I said, I'm not really, I haven't really fully developed the idea yet, but it's definitely something that I've been kicking around in my head the past few years. Every time I see, every time I see a site and I visit an ancient site with a, with a cathedral on it or a church or whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. And let's now get to, start to get to the meat of your book. I see mysterious, as you call it, mysterious, mysterious cultural parallels shared across the Atlantic Ocean. How did old and new world, well, that's what we call it, the, the new world, when in fact we found a lot of researchers are saying that the pyramids were probably built at the same time. Even Graham Hancock calls it the the 
aha moments or, or the all of a sudden, because we we're finding that the dates are, are, are being put back years and years. For example, the Maya. The Maya, they had uh, pyramid construction, sun worshipping, and mummification, exactly as the Egyptians. What are the what are the chances that this could be happening at the same time, or even in different times, if supposedly these civilizations were not connected with each other and had no contact with each other? Yeah, it's fascinating. That that's something that's fascinated me for for many many years. It's what started me on the quest um, when I was basically still a child. There, there's no way, and I, I'll laugh at any scholar who can tell me that uh, that the pyramids in the old world predate the pyramids in the new world by thousands of years. I hear people repeat that a lot, and I mean, there, there's so many pyramids in the new world. Um, it's unbelievable how somebody could say um, an ancient monument, an ancient pyramidal monument that's that's so old as to be in ruins in Mexico or in Peru. Is is younger than a, a, an ancient pyramid in, say, Babylon or uh, or Egypt. There's just no way to tell. There really isn't. And to believe what scholars put forth, and as they say, uh, everything started about 2,500 years BC, and anything before that is just basically cave people. Is ridiculous. It really is. Um, it's impossible to say where pyramids started, where where when they began. Um, it, it could very well be that pyramids were, are much older in the New World here in the Americas, in North America and Middle America and South America, than they are in the, in the Old World, in, in Europe and in Africa and, and places like that, China. So it's really impossible for anybody to say. What we do know is that pyramids were built by, by very, very ancient civilizations on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. And that's what we have. Um, you know, scholars want to protect themselves and, and they want to, they want everybody to think that they have the whole thing under control and this is how history happened. And, and I fall under that spell and I don't really fall under that spell too much anymore. But even as, even as, you know, little as a couple of years ago, I believe that. And hey, if scholars said it, then, you know, they must know what they're talking about. But That's if right. you really, break, if you really break it down, they, you know, they, they, they're given what they're told by their professors and their professors are given what they're told by their professors. And before that, you have the Victorians who didn't believe any of what the modern people believe, what modern professors believe. The Victorians believed in Atlantis. And that's something that, uh, that I've always been drawn to. And I, you know, and I've learned to realize that, uh, if I'm drawn to it, then study it, learn it, figure it out because you're drawn to it for a reason. That's why I keep saying that we need to start demythologizing history. And many people talk about Atlantis being in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Why do we even call the Atlantic Ocean the Atlantic Ocean? Where did the name come from? And then when you see all these civilizations, not only in, in, in Egypt and in, in America, but also in, in the Far East, where they have the triptych, and we'll get into the triptychs in, in a second, but... I can only think this probably came from one place, from one source, from one location. And this, in my opinion, lends some credence to, to Atlantis having existed and perhaps, you know, 10,000 years before Christ, when the Diluvian or the Cataclysm happened, that's when they somewhat escaped around the world. And uh, as a way to honor their ancestors and, and their motherland, that's why they started building all these similar monuments around the world. Am I close to what I'm saying? Yeah, I, that's something. That's exactly what I believe. That's exactly what the Victorian era scholars believed. 
you know, you read books by these Victorian era scholars. Boy, they were really intelligent people. You know, a, a sentence goes on for two or three pages. You know, it's they were they were really intelligent. You know, and if you look at the books from scholars today, you kind of start to wonder. I mean, you know, who, who really had who really had all the wisdom? I mean, the, these Victorians really had deep minds. And you could say that they didn't have all the facts in front of them, but they were uncovering a lot and they knew a lot of what was going on. Um, and they really did believe that uh, the similarities were unbelievably deep and profound. And they knew there was a connection. They called the, the, the mother culture Atlantis. They believed in a mother culture. They believed there were, there was something behind these parallels. Somehow, all of a sudden, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, scholars all of a sudden say, no, there's, there's nothing to it. It makes no sense. They ridicule it. They, um, you know, they destroy the idea so much that you almost feel like there's, there's something behind it. It almost seems like they're trying to cover something up. Now, of course, not all of them are on board to cover it up. A lot of, a lot of them are just, you know, kids that are, you know, they go to school and they're taught by their professors that Atlantis is a ridiculous idea. So rather than using their minds and thinking about it and asking questions about it and going in search of it for themselves, as like I have, they want to get a job. You know, their parents paid for their school. They want to do good in school. They want to get good grades. They want to become an archaeologist. So they just toe the line. They're given what they're told and they don't question it for themselves. And that's what happened now. That's where we are now. Um, you know, a few of the higher ups say, listen, Atlantis is a ridiculous idea. We're not going to support it. And that's it. If you want, if you want to, if you want to get a job in that profession, you got to buy into it. And I had never bought into it. And, uh, and that's why I'm able to to study it the way I have and come at it this angle the way I have. There's there's no doubt in my mind there was a, there was a mother culture. It's just you know it in some way it ended either through a cataclysm or you know just a slow decline. Um, at some point, all memory of it became forgotten, but it lives on in the in the civilizations like the cultures that eventually led up to the Egyptians, the Chinese, the Mayans, and, and that type of stuff. And they had the vision of putting a lot of the stuff in uh, in stone. I remember Zechariah Sitchin always talking about this: how, you know, if a cataclysm were to occur now, and he was he would hold a a uh, cuneiform tablet in one hand and a piece of paper in the other, which is the knowledge that would survive? And right now, where do we store our knowledge? Pretty much in computer chips or or or, or silicon chips. You know, if a cataclysm were to occur. That will be wiped out. We'll be back to stones and, and sticks again. And we had to go back to the ancient ones and their stone tablets. But you say the ancient civilizations knew how to see the soul inside our bodies. But this has been kept secret by Western secret societies like uh, Freemasons, Skull and Bones, etc. Can you explain more? Yeah, yeah. That's a definite. There, there's no doubt in my mind. Um, one of the things in the book I, I explained that links all the secret societies is that the facades of their buildings all have what I call triptychs. And those are the three door entries with the door in the middle being wider than the outer two doorways. Sometimes they're windows. Um, but that's a pattern that's found all over the ancient world. Um, you find it in, in China, you find it in, uh, in ancient Peru and, Ancient Mexico and ancient Egypt, Babylon, um, really in India, wherever there were ancient peoples building monuments, you find the triptych. 
And it's funny, um, Greece and Rome, etc. It's funny because if you really study their religion and their philosophies, they were all the same. They were all the same. And it's incredible how scholars don't don't haven't figured this out yet. Um, you know, Socrates had the same exact religion as the ancient Hindus. Maybe not all the gods and things like that, but the philosophy was the same. You know, the ancient Egyptians and the ancient Mayans shared the same exact philosophy. Um, and if you know what you're looking for and you can read it, even, even in, in modern scholarly works, you can read it and you can understand that there was an ancient universal, universal spiritual tradition and everybody knew it and everybody shared it. And all it is, is this, that we are all divine, that we didn't come from monkeys or things like that. We fell from, div from divinity. We fell from heaven. There's a divine spark in us. We are a soul. We are a, a god. You know, each one of us is a powerful deity. Um, and we have, in a sense, in a sense, we've created our own reality here. And we are not the body. The body is just an animal that lives and dies. It was born, it grows up, it has a little bit of a life, and then it dies. But that's not who we are. That's our lower self, lowercase s. We have inside of us a higher self with, a higher, with an uppercase s. That higher self is the divine. It's a soul. Uh, it's a god. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. Um, that's a quote from C.W. Lewis, um, so or C.S. Lewis. I always get them to, those two confused. But um, but the tradition teaches that not only that we are a soul and that we're having a, a, an experience as human beings, but it teaches that hidden in our forehead there is an eye, the eye of the soul. Plato called it that. The ancient Hindus called it that. The ancient Mayans put a dot there to symbolize it just as the two physical eyes that we all have see outward at material things this inner eye this third eye sees inward at spiritual things namely the soul so when you awaken your third eye you can see that you are a soul you are an eternal being you were never born and you will never die because that's who you are um, and this is all that's it that's the religion right there and once you can start operating from that middle way, as, as the Buddha called it, the middle path between extremes, between opposites, then you really know who you are. And that's, isn't that the, the iconic saying of, of history, of, of all, you know, know thyself, to thy known self be true, know who you are. And when you know who you are, your life changes. Your life, you know, you start to realize that you're not your body. You're, you're the deeper entity that's animating it all. You're the soul that's animating your body. And life takes on a whole new powerful perspective. And I always had a problem with uh, the, 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 the thought of you have to do good because you'll be rewarded. And if you don't do good, you're, you'll, you'll face eternal damnation. I had a problem with that all my life, that it was re if there was really a God that they wanted to, to conduct themselves this way. But looking at your book and all these pictures that you've included... Have you asked an academic to explain the, the triptychs, the three doors in almost every ancient monument, in ev almost in every continent? If you have, what have they said? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question, Mel. I am in talks with scholars. I definitely am. And I have to say that anywhere outside of the U.S., they're much more open-minded. 
But here in the U.S., the, the scholars have this unbelievably, and not all of them, and I hate to paint them all with the same brush, but generally speaking, a lot of them have this unbelievably elitist point of view, kind of like, listen, kid, you know, I've, I've been doing this for so many years and I went through so many classes and I took all these classes and, you know, I've, I've dug in the field. You know, I, I dug in the field and I, I get it. You know, I, I do get that. Okay, you dug in the field. I understand that. You spent six months digging, you know. But, you know, who who among us has, has looked at the different parts of the world to see the similarities of the things that you've dug up, you know? Digging doesn't make you necessarily a, a, some kind of a, a professional who can understand what these items mean. You know, a lot of times these items, they don't know what they mean. You know, what does a sphinx mean? What does a staff god mean? Um, if you look at the cultures and you can see that there's a sphinx in two different cultures or three or four different cultures or a staff god in two or three, four different cultures, and they have, and you can start to decipher the meaning because in each culture it has the same meaning, then you're on to something. And that's what I feel I'm on to, where I'm finding the same things in different cultures and I'm able to show how they mean the same things in each culture. Now, this isn't me trying to sell books. This is me. I'm, I'm interested because it's the meaning of life. These people knew the meaning of life. And that's why that's what's driving me forward. And in writing books, it kind of helps me organize my thoughts and putting it down and saying, OK, this is what this means. And this is what this means. And, you know, building on top from there. Um, but, to, you know, to answer your question, I'm still in talks with scholars um, the scholars that, that are most perceptive are the ones outside the United States. And lastly, I'm totally with you, Mel, where I don't believe in the God of the Bible, um, how he created the world and how he's looking down on us and he cares. I, it's a great, you know, fantasy tale. And for kids, it's very comforting a thought. But um, I don't believe that if there was a fatherly figure up there, he would have created a world like this. Um, you know, I, ha I have a son myself, and I wouldn't create a world like this for my son. I would be much more of a paradise. And if he is omnipotent and omniscient, if he is all-powerful and all-knowing and can do anything, then he damn well could have created a paradise for us, and he didn't. So then you have to realize either he couldn't or he wouldn't. And so that destroys the whole, you know, God is supreme, God is great type of thing in my book. Yeah, yeah. It seems that you and I had a, a, a similar upbringing in that regard. Um, you know, I think of, of somebody going to, to college to, be an, to become an anthropologist. Nowhere in the curriculum does it say, think outside the box. If you do think outside the box, you'll be out of there. You will not be able to get a job. It's almost, as you say, it's been religion and, and, and education. They have been commercialized to a certain point where they work together. Who finances? Who funds? Who gives the grants? If you look back, it's the ones who keep the current paradigm. Anybody who who steps outside the box, and, and we talk about free energy, we talk about you know learning. The foundation of this program, Rich, is who are we? Where do we come from? Or where are we going? You can never get those answers in academia today, and you have to step outside and do what you're doing. But where did the triptych originate? And I ask you this because we've seen images lately from other planets. Take Mars, for example, where there's sacred geometry. There what appears to be pyramids there 
something tells me that one day, if we're able to explore the planet the way we should, not via NASA, which is just our window dressing, we'll be able to maybe find those three doors as well there. It seems that this knowledge transcends the planet. I totally agree. Yeah, it does. It's something that's ingrained in the universe itself. And that's what makes it so powerful. Um, it's something that has to do with the transition from the spiritual plane to the physical world. That's, that's as far as I'm, I'm getting right now in my research. It's something that's ingrained in nature. It's a doorway from the spiritual to the material. I think there's a, a spiritual source from which each of us come, from which, from which each of us is going back to eventually. Um, and in, in a sense from which, in which each of us are even there right now as we speak. Um, and I think that the triptych is the doorway to that spiritual realm. And it works back and forth. It's a doorway to the spiritual realm and it's a doorway to the material world. So yeah, I think just like you say, I, I do. I think that there's going, as we start to branch out into the universe and start to see the other, um, extraterrestrial cultures that are out there. And if anybody thinks that there's no extraterrestrials out there, I have proof that there are extraterrestrials and that's us here on this world. That's the proof. That's all the proof that you need that we exist here. So they exist there. And, you know, there's billions of other star systems and planets out there. So it's, I think, unbelievably foolish to believe that we're alone. Um, but yeah, I think that as we branch out there, we're going to see the triptych and you can probably find it, you know, in any type of, um, as science um, gets more and more deep in, in the atom and all that type of stuff, they're going to find it. They're going to find the triptych everywhere in DNA. It's just the code of nature, two opposites. A totality co is comprised of opposites. And that's, that's it. And you'll find it everywhere. You know, I'm learning so much in the past half few years, Rich. You know, now the triptych, it's a new thing for me because I always saw the three doors, but it never triggered my brain to say, wait a second, this just not only appears in federal buildings and churches, but it's also in pyramids and it's also in many other places. What is the meaning of the three doors? Uh, I'm confused as to why they're there. Have you found the answer? Well, it, you know, it really depends on what the monument is. It's, it's a powerful symbol. And, and even now, after having written the book, it's, it's, um, nine months out there on the market. Even now I'm starting, I mean, I feel like I'm just starting to begin my journey into the triptych. And it's been, you know, many, many, many years since I first discovered the triptych. I was in Egypt actually when it happened. But, um, the triptych is this. It's a, Ancient cultures all around the world built triptych temples. And the triptych temple is a three-door entry to a temple where the door in the middle is larger in some way than the outer two flanking it. Um, you find it in all ancient cultures. What does it mean? Okay. The outer two doors are the doors of opposites. Uh, the door on the right is opposite to the door on the left, just by nature of the positioning. One is on the right, one is on the left. Um, and the one in the middle is the center door, the centered door, the door of balance. It balances the two opposite doors. If you look at modern architecture, a lot of it was created by the Freemasons. 
um, you'll see that uh, that they encoded this idea everywhere. The first and most obvious place that comes to my mind is Rockefeller Center in Manhattan, New York, where you have a you know where the Christmas tree lighting takes place every year. Um, behind that Christmas tree is the is the main entry to Rockefeller Center, and it's a three way it's a three door entry. It's a triptych, and the door on the right is is um, there's a massive drawing of a male and the door on the left, there's a massive drawing of a female and the door in the middle has a deity, a God who's holding a compass in his hand, a Masonic compass in his hand. And that just tells us what the triptych is. It's, it's a balance of opposites to find the deity within it's balancing the right side, which is male and solar with the left side, which is female and lunar and in making that balance and striking that balance, that middle door opens. And when that middle door opens, when that third eye opens, you look within and you find the God within. It's telling us that in the center of your being, when you balance your own opposites, because you have your body is is symmetrical and your body has a left side and a right side too, just like the, that triptych entry. Your right, the right side of your body is male and solar. The left side of your body is female and lunar. Um, growing up, we always thought we had an angel on our right shoulder telling us to do good and a demon on our left shoulder telling us to do evil, right? Mm -hmm. So if you balance the two and you realize that in the material world, only do we find good and evil. These are temporary apparitions. Everything in the material world is temporary. Um, it changes. But there's a world of eternity in some way lies behind all the materiality. And that's where the, the middle door leads to that eternal spiritual realm. And that's where the, that's where we come from, that eternal spiritual realm. That's where the higher self within us comes from, the soul within us, the divine within us, because the higher realm is eternal and divine. So the triptych is basically telling us this, that you're, Living in the material world, you're temporarily a material being. And just like everything in the material world, your body and, and everything that you, that you go through in life is made of opposites. Good and evil, left and right, male and female, right and wrong, top and bottom, this and that. And only when you balance those two opposites will you really start to find the true self, the center within. I know I'm speaking too much now, but let me just say this real quick. The way I really uncovered this was in Freemasonry, there are two pillars, the Jachin and the Boaz pillars. Jachin always appears on the right side with a sun above it. Boaz always appears on the left side with a moon above it. And you see the sun and the moon in all types of neo-pagan uh, societies and, and Wicca and all this type of stuff. And I always asked everybody, but no one ever gave me a clear explanation of what the sun and the moon is. What do they mean? What do they represent? What do they symbolize? Until I really figured it out myself. And that is this. They stand for opposites. The sun, we equate the sun with the day and we equate the moon with the night. Day and night are opposites. The sun gives us light. The day gives us light. The night gives us dark. Dark and light are opposites. During the day, it's hot because the sun is shining. At night, it's cold because there's no sun. 
hot and cold are opposites. Uh, so t- and, and during the day, it's dry because the sun dries everything. At night, everything is moist because there's no sun. We wake up in the morning and we see dew in the grass. So dry and moist are opposites. Um, and we associate light with good and we associate dark with evil. Good and evil are opposites. So if you go on down the line and you figure this out, light and dark, day and night, um, good and evil, hot and cold, dry and moist, etc. The sun and the moon engender and denote all the pairs of opposites in existence. And so that's the reason, that's the meaning of the sun and the moon. Now, here's an interesting thing also. When you're standing on the earth and you look at the sun and the full moon in the sky, they're exactly the same size. That's amazing. And that's not a coincidence. There's something going on here. Think about that. Not only do the sun and the moon engender and denote all the pairs of opposites in existence, but both heavenly bodies are the same exact size in our sky when viewed from Earth. So that to me was a wake up call. And that to me was something that, um, you know, that that really just I I still can't get over it. And I still um, it still just drives me forward every single day when I think about it. And even when you see when you see the uh, solar eclipse, you see the moon or lunar eclipse, you see the moon in the same precise position. They're the same size. But because of the brightness of the sun, it almost looks like it's an eye. Right. And and that's another message from beyond. You know, the message from beyond, the first message is there, your world is made of pairs of opposites. That's why I'm giving you the sun and I'm giving you the moon. Figure that out. The second thing I want you to figure out is when you join the opposites, when you put them together, when you balance them, then you'll find the eye. And that's the eye, the all-seeing eye, the eye of wisdom, the the eye that we all have that I, as I mentioned earlier, hidden in our foreheads. That's the eye we need to awaken. And that's the eye that these elite and these powers that uh, have robbed Freemasonry of their ancient secret, that's what they don't want us to know. They don't want us to know that we have a third eye. They don't want us to find our true self within. They don't want us to become empowered Um, And because when we do, we'll realize that, you know what, we don't need a Mercedes Benz to be happy. We don't need a mansion to be happy. We don't need to buy all the clothes at Macy's to be happy. We don't need to to adorn ourselves and all this crap. We are we have all that we need. We are eternal, powerful beings. And we need to stop hating and, and being in competition with each other. And we need to love each other and take good care of each other. And that's what they're afraid will happen. And yeah. so far, doing a damn good job because I see a nation in turmoil right now. And for the past good, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, I see a nation in turmoil. I want to discuss what you just said, which to me is divide and conquer. But let me go back once again to the Freemasons, because you mentioned that a lot of people, especially conspiracy theorists, think that they're all bad. At the same time, we know of people who are allegedly part of a Freemasonry, like uh, take Tony Blair, who's allegedly a 33rd degree Mason. And uh, I take Ron Howard, uh, the the uh, director, who before Apollo, th- Apollo 13, he wasn't even a Freemason. He became a Freemason, all of a sudden produced that movie. And after the movie, he was already a 33rd degree Mason. I can't help but notice how 
people in in positions of power, people who are known to 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 keep secrets and even lie, as many of politicians do, are associated with Freemasonry. Let's take the the astronauts for us and as an example. I've heard that many, or if not all, astronauts are Masons as well. There's even a lodge in Texas called Tranquility Sea of Tranquility. In Texas, a lot, and supposedly there's an, a chapter in the moon. This may sound like science fiction, but do you see how some people in power may have that reputation tarnished because of their mere position in power? Yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I, I can see that. I do. Um, but I can't see anything in Freemasonry today um, that... That, uh, you know, I, I really can't speak about it because I don't know. But if you asked me and you did, you know, I, it's hard for me to see modern Freemasons who can't even organize a picnic um, try to take over the world. You know what I mean? Um, these people are just, uh, you know, are, are not necessary. There's a lot of just regular Joes there. And I've heard people say, well, there's an inner circle. That's what you don't see. And I would say, yeah, but that's just what I don't see. So how do I know it's there? Um, one thing that I would say is just like me, I mean, I think a lot of a lot of ma- people who become Freemasons, they join because they feel like they're going to get wisdom there yeah. on the meaning of life. Why am I here? What is all this about? How can I improve? How can I become better, stronger? I want to do – I feel like I'm missing something. I feel like I have amnesia of who I really am. Let me let me try to join a religion and they don't find it there. Let me try to you know have, make certain friends and they don't find it there. Let me get a good job and they don't find it there. Where the hell are they going to find it? Let me try to join the Freemasons. It's an ancient wisdom society. All the former presidents of the U.S. were Masons. Maybe I'll find it there. Um, and I think that by nature these people are stronger people. I think that the people who you know, who, who go out and just say, you know what, I'm going to make a lot of money. And that's what life is about. I think those are weaker people by nature. I think the stronger ones are the ones who question, why am I here? What am I? What is all this about? All the people that are listening right now, those are strong people. They probably just don't realize it. A lot of them may not realize how strong they are, but they're all powerful. And I think that uh, a lot of the people that you mentioned are strong people and joined for the, for that reason, because they do have that that yearning, and or at one point they did, and who knows? I mean, they made they may have strayed from the path. You know, this is a dangerous path when you when you become a seeker, and when you're really on the path to self knowledge, and and you really start to become aware, and you start to open your third eye, you start to gain power, and you got to be careful what you do with that power, and you always have to be vigilant and guarding, you know, being and guard what you do with that power. I've noticed in my own life, especially the past few years, that I've, I've, I have unbelievable power and I, and I can do things that I never thought I could do before. And I am doing things I never thought I was able to do before. Um, and I know that that could be negative to some people and I know the power that I have and I'm very, very careful. I think some people might not be as careful as other people and they might, you know, slide off the path and, and, you know, try to rule others or try to, you know, do things that aren't necessarily right with the power that they're getting. And that happens to a lot of people when when they're children, they feel that they have certain attributes 
they're ridiculed by their parents because their parents are programmed by by education and by religion to say, hey, don't go there, that this is just crazy talk. When in fact, this could have been something that we are all, uh, something that we all have. But, you know, the, the, the triptych, going back to the triptychs once again, this is everywhere. Just like the Fibonacci numbers. This is something I, I found out recently. Fibonacci numbers are everywhere in plants, in flowers, in our own skeletal body. We see it everywhere, almost as if it, this is part of nature in the universe. But going back to something interesting you said about our presidents being Masons, what was the religion of the founding fathers? I ask you, Rich, because if European immigrants originally came to America and, and created this country to escape from religious persecution, and, and you even quote a number of presidents in your book who say the USA was not founded on the Christian religion, why is it that today the media portrays our government as based on Christianity? I'm all for everyone to express their beliefs. I'll fight for that right, whatever they are. But if there is separation of church and state, why doesn't it feel that way? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. If you ask a lot of the scholars, and I have, you'll hear them say that uh, the Founding Fathers were deists. Um, and that never made any sense to me, and it still doesn't. Um, they they were spiritual seekers. Each one of them were spiritual seekers. Um, you know, um, the the media wants, the, wants uh us to believe that the founding fathers were were Christians. They want this to be a nation that believes in the Bible, um, not necessarily just Christianity. They want us to follow the Bible, um, and they'll they'll do little tricks and stuff like that to make people fight to have the Bible in this country because the Bible is the main tool that's used to deceive and to make sure people aren't aware of the ancient universal religion. I know that's hard for a lot of people to swallow. And, you know, quite frankly, 15, 20 years ago, it would have been hard for me to swallow. Um, but I did start to realize that the Bible is, is really what's causing a lot of the deception. So one of the things that the media does is they, um, they say that this whole thing, I don't remember what state it was in, but um, I think there were the 10 commandments that they wanted to depict in one of the courthouses and everybody was saying, no, you know, you shouldn't do that or you can't do that because there should be a separation of church and state. And why do we use the word God? And they make people want to fight for that because people, when you talk about God, everybody becomes religious and spiritual. And, oh, my gosh, God is the greatest. How can you say that? No, if you don't talk about God positively, then you're a devil. And how can you not say good things about God and that type of stuff? But uh, but I don't say good things about God because uh, – because I don't believe in it. And I, if there was a God, then he would make sure that I do believe who he was. If he's my father in heaven, he would care enough and show himself to me. And he hasn't. And I know he's failed a lot of millions of people uh, in the world. But getting back to your question, there's no way the founding fathers were, were Bible-thumping Christians. And um, they were very deep spiritual seekers. And you could tell by what they had done, you know, creating a new nation that was founded on a fantastic piece of paper called the Constitution and fighting off the British, etc., etc., that they were very powerful men. They were very spiritual men. They were, a lot of them were Freemasons, um, which means that they were on the path. And they, you know, being on the path, as I said before, makes you empowered and it gives you powers. 
Um, and you have to be careful what you do with those powers. These men were careful what they did with the power. They created a fantastic nation, um, and that's where we live today. Yeah. And a few seconds ago, you used the word materiality, material things. Explain how the Atlanteans allegedly had their third eye Anita trophied when we turn from spirituality to materiality? Yeah, great question. According to Plato, uh, and that's really the main source that we have for Atlantis, according to Plato, he said the divine element within them became weaker and their material element grew as their material element grew. In other words, um, they and I forget the exact quote, but I think it has something to do with that. They started to really focus less on the spiritual part of themselves and more on material gain. Um, and that I think says it all. Not only does it say that, you know, deep inside we're divine, but also that the Atlanteans lost their, they didn't lose their divinity. And, and just like me and you, Mel, we haven't lost our divinity. We're just as divine as they were, but They've lost memory of who they are. They, we have amnesia today. They didn't have as much amnesia as we did. Um, but we today have amnesia of who we really are, of where we came from, of who we are inside. The Atlanteans during their golden age, let's say, they flourished because they knew who they were. Um, they, they had uh, access to the third eye. Um, they flourished because of it. And little by little, as the divine element became weaker, as they started to um, not celebrate the spirituality anymore and, and, and the divinity anymore, part the divine part of themselves, and they became, let's say, more, they started to drink more alcohol. They started to care more about material things than spiritual things. Uh, little by little, it digressed. And I think that's what led to the so-called cataclysm. And I think that's what... Uh, that's what Plato was talking about when he talked about Atlantis. And, uh, and he didn't talk about it as if it was some mythical place. You know, he talked about it as a, if it was a real place. Exactly. And I have to ask you, then, what happened to the Atlantis? You, you've researched Madame Blavatsky, Plato. Is it the cataclysm? To, is that what you attribute the the death of, of Atlantis and perhaps that's how they moved around the world and that's why we see the monuments we see today with so many similarities? I, I, I feel like um, a lot of the flood stories, we, we grew up, Mel, thinking and being told that there was a flood, you know, through the Bible, you know, Noah's Ark. There, were, there was a flood a long time ago. Guy named Noah. I took two of every animal, got in the boat, and 40 days later, the the water receded. So that's the way we grew up thinking, you know, about the flood. And little by little, um, we see that in every culture, every ancient culture, there's a flood story, a flood myth they call it. I don't know why they say myth. It seems as though it was real, but they uh, or at least based on a real event. So they all had these stories. Of a flood. Now, if you think about what Plato said, that Atlantis sank into the sea, it's all, it's kind of similar, you know? If you match those two together, how all the cultures talked about a flood, and Plato talked about a cataclysm and Atlantis sinking in the water, is it possible that 
all these ancient cultures, when they talk about a flood, they were actually talking about the sinking of a continent or the sinking of Atlantis. Is it is it possible? That's it seems like there's a connection there. Um, and so that's that's where I find it to be the most interesting, where, you know, linking the flood stories with the with the sinking of Atlantis. And you'll find that in Blavatsky and you'll find that in a lot of uh, a lot of the Victorian scholars who, who believed in Atlantis link those two as well. And I'll I'll end this segment with a, 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 a thought and any question that I want to get your take on the other side. You mentioned mythologist Joseph Campbell and the fact that ancient civilizations all spoke of a quote-unquote golden age when man flourished in peace, where all spoke the same language of the soul, where all people were united as one with one tongue. I mentioned this, Rich, because this has to be one of the biggest enigmas for me. Why so many languages, religions, cultures, etc.? It's almost as if this was introduced on purpose to keep humanity divided. If this really, if this really was true, and, and we flourished in peace and with one tongue, when and what cha what changed it? I'll take your answer on the other side. Tell us once again how to get in touch with your work and buy this great book. Oh yeah, you could go to www.deepertruth.com to buy the book, and I have some articles on there and some videos. And I also have another website, richardcasaro.com, where I have articles that some of which are based on the book and some of which aren't. So those are the two main websites. Well, folks, I'm here with Richard Cassaro. I'm really, really enjoying this interview. The book is wonderful. I highly recommend it. And when we come back, we have, we have so much more to discuss. So if you're enjoying what you're listening to, get back with us in segment two. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the member section. Enjoy.
This is Ian R. Crane, and you are listening to Veritas. <laughs> 